and saw his networks drop Oh, we poured a glass of vino Because Chuck Yates needs a job Welcome everybody to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. Here we are in the Digital Wildcatter Studios. It's actually getting kind of high tech. We got new cameras, but honored today to have my guest, Chris Transier of, tell me your company name again. Bandera. He literally told me that two seconds it's, ago and I already forgot. Yeah, it was two or three seconds ago. Now, how'd you actually find the name? Because isn't that the hard thing today is to find a name for a company? Well, it's funny how much time you spend, you know, you have a name idea and then you just go straight to GoDaddy and see if you can work any kind of reasonable website to go along with it. But um, Bandera was, is a town uh, not too far from San Antonio that all of us had some random connection to. And so when we were throwing out names, that one kind of stuck. Um, What's your connection to it? I grew up, um, I had a friend that had a family place there and I went a few times and just kind of fell in love with that part of Texas. And similar to uh, my partner, Brad Wright, his, um, his wife and his family spent some time around it as well. So I think our, our dreams are to own a place in that part of the world someday. Nice. So we'll just start with having the name. But, um, and it just so happened by coincidence, my daughter went to camp in Bandera this summer and so there was just, that was all happening around the same time. Gotcha. The known for two things, the Robeson brothers, Charlie and Bruce. Didn't know that. Uh, are actually from Bandera. Bruce, we won't say it yet because Willie Nelson's still alive, but I think Bruce is arguably our greatest, our second greatest songwriter in Texas right okay. now. Okay, That's a big statement. The, uh, and I think it's a true one. And then isn't uh, Bandera, Texas called the cowboy capital of the world? It is called the cowboy capital of the world. Yeah, there was, you know, kind of legends that go back to Indian times and stuff like that. But um, all I was looking for is making sure it wasn't known for some kind of really bad thing that happened, <laughs> you know. Um, so, but it's a really cool little town. It's got the classic Texas Main Street, you know, and you go and there's a bunch of shops and random restaurants and things like that. So um, it's, uh, it's a cool place to go to. So back when I was at Kane, that was always the hardest problem thing was to find a name that nobody had yet. Yep. And we were always, you know, whatever you want to call your company, call your company, it's your, you know, it's your company. But the funny thing was we, we vetoed a name once and I kid you not, a CEO wanted to call his company El Diablo Energy. <laughs> and it was just like, really? You're yeah. going to go to Farmer Bob and say, please lease to the devil. Yeah. The devil wants to come drill on you. Yeah. So. It's probably not going to work very well. Yeah. So tell me about starting a private equity company. What were you doing before? How'd you start your first one? What was kind of the, the story there? Well, I guess going back to Fortis as the, the first example of doing that, um, I had been CFO of a small South Texas company called Escondido. It was private equity backed. And, um, the idea to do Fortis was kind of born out of a couple of things. One was, uh, Escondido and the South Texas landowner and just the interaction there was something that really opened my eyes to the royalty position in general and, um, opening my eyes to, I'd much rather be in the royalty position than being in the working interest position. Um, part of that was because, 
uh, the time that I was there was 2014 through 2016, which was, you know, it, it feels like a broken record now, but it was a tough time to be in oil and gas. Um, and so when we were struggling with respect to Escondido, um, you know, we were trying to get reprieve from the landowners in terms of provisions and the leases and stuff like that, which we were basically just laughed at. Um, and, <laughs> you know, so it's like, well, okay, I'd much rather be in the, in the position where you don't have to do anything. So that kind of got my interest going with respect to royalties. And then um, I had gotten to know a guy named Sky Callantine who was running a business called Felix. And um, he had already started the effort to buy royalties that were connected to his position within Felix, but really wanted to get going um, to make a truly purpose-built company that just focused on royalties. So the two of us got together with respect to that concept and we brought it to NCAP because NCAP is um, or was the sponsor of Felix was also the sponsor of Escondido. So there was a lot of reasons why that made sense. Um, so there was a concept and an idea that we brought to them. They were supportive of it and we got going. Gotcha. And, you know, this is interesting because I have never understood minerals. Back when I was at Kane, we, we backed Haymaker and Carl Brunsicki is one of my dearest friends on the planet, but he would come in with a deal and I just never understood how you valued a mineral. I'd, I'd ra at one point, I had wrapped my head around, okay, if we pay PDP PV zero, you know, if we pay 100 and over the next 40 years we get 100 back, then we'll make money if it, there's drilling. I'd kind of said, okay, that sort of makes sense to me. We can kind of see drilling coming, we can go look at geology, et cetera, and, and figure out, does that make sense? And we underbid everything by 75% doing that, yeah. <laughs> it seemed like. Yep. So how do you, I mean, how were you guys looking at, at, uh, at buying them? Yeah, I mean, it would, it's, it's just an NAV um, fundamental valuation, no different than a lot of other upstream valuation. But obviously there's so many different things that you can put into Excel or whatever your valuation tool is of choice to make it say really whatever you want it to say. So, you know, we would, of course, PDP would be a part of the valuation and then you would pick how much drilling activity you thought was going to show up and you would run a discounted cash flow model and you would come up with the value on that basis. That's what we would do. Um, something we would not do or things we would not do is we wouldn't bake in exit valuation. So we wouldn't have a terminal value that existed in years five or six. And then that juices the return and therefore you feel good about buying it. Oh yeah. Every model I saw from Carl always had 15 times cash flow as an exit. And I was like, man, I'd sell my kids for 15 yeah, times. Yeah, cash exactly. Flow. I, mean, there, yeah. I mean, that's probably or a lot of people might do that, but, um, so we wouldn't do that. And as a result, it would keep us down in terms of what we were willing to buy something for. The other thing that we would never do is play the cash flow multiple ARB game where you would say, well, I'm buying this thing for it's producing next to nothing now. It's going to have a bunch of wells with flush production. And all of a sudden, if I put to your point, 15 times or 10 times cash flow, then it's worth infinity dollars, you know? And so we wouldn't do that. And a lot of times we would lose deals on that basis. We would just basically only ever look at it as if we owned it forever. And anything that is better than owning it forever, meaning somebody's willing to pay you along the way, something that cements a good return, well, then great. Um, but it has to at least cross that threshold. At least that's how we thought about it. Because this was crazy in a perfectly acceptable response is no shit Sherlock to yep. what I'm about to say. But 
you know, it took me about three or four models of looking through uh, minerals and you figure out if I get 75% of the EUR right on future drilling, it's way more important uh, as opposed to getting that right to have that well drilled this year versus three years from now. It was the pace of drilling that mattered way more than whether you got the EURs right. By far. Yeah, no, that's, that is no shit, Sherlock. Yeah. yeah. But it's, um, that, that's the deal. I mean, if you're buying in particular, if you're buying something ahead of the drill bit where you're hoping that drilling is coming, then the timing of that is all the difference in the world to, to end up hitting your target returns that you underwrote. But, um, you know, there's just like this amazing proposition in minerals where there is some, there's some value to the real estate almost no matter what. Right. And so there's some like you could sell it for X dollars almost no matter what. There's always a buyer for minerals. And I don't think that that's I don't think that's easy to understand. Um, we, we had a discussion one time with a public equities investor as we were preparing to take our business public. And he was like, I think I understand that you basically own a prime block in like downtown L.A. It just doesn't have anything on it yet. And there's a value to that. Right. And I was like, well, that's a good, that's a good analogy. I mean, like for Houston, it's like if you owned real estate at Kirby and Westheimer and it has nothing on it, right? it's very valuable real estate. You have no idea when it's going to be developed, but you know, you're happy to own that for a price. I think that's true in any major basin in the U.S., um, but you can't really bake that into your, to your model. Yeah. You know, the thing I've heard, and you tell me whether this is true or not, is I have heard because a royalty interest is a uh, is a net property interest or is a property interest that it qualifies for a 1031 exchange. Yep. And there's a whole set of buyers out there that are real estate developers that go out, build a new building, sell it, get a big payday, and then flip that money into royalties just to park the money for mm-hmm. their next building. Is there any truth to that? There's definitely truth to that. There's some exchanges that exist for that purpose. Um, and there are some some kind of flippers have capitalized on that as well as just a home to place things. And there's some guys in Dallas in particular that, that play that market. Uh, we never really interacted with it very much. Um, but we knew that it existed, that it was some people were buying into minerals for that reason. And what's interesting too, is kind of back to the, let's say somebody was successful using your example, they had a building, they sold it, they want to flip into something to defer their tax realization. They are not a very disciplined buyer. They are a, like, I need to buy something within 365 days. And so they're going to just buy something that shows up in front of them. So it can actually be a pretty unique solution for somebody that's holding on to some minerals they want to sell. Because, I mean, theoretically, if, and I'm no tax accountant, but theoretically, if you flipped your building quick and it's going to be ordinary income tax, you're playing with like 35, 40%, you know, depending on what state you're in. So that at least made some sense to me on why I couldn't wrap my arms around valuations in the I don't think that space. impacts a you lot of the market. So? Yeah. I, not enough to not enough to drive value at scale. Um I think it can impact, you know, smaller deals. I don't think it impacts the market broadly. I got you. I got you. So how'd y'all know what to buy? I mean, given that drilling is the important thing, the way we did it um kind of at Kane was we in effect 
bought minerals out in front of the uh, the Kane Anderson portfolio drill bit. You know, we yep. I think at one point we had thirty rigs running, and so we just had Haymaker out scouring the whole area, buying out in front of uh, the drill bit because we at least knew where the rig was going to go. But how would you guys think about that? Yeah, we were mainly just trying to, um, we were one step removed from that. We we didn't have control or really perfect information of the drill bit, but we had, we were studying all the operators that we liked. So we yeah. were studying where they were, where our best guess was of where they were going to go. And pairing that with a technical view that we had developed in-house with respect to just where we thought the best parts of the play were. Right. And um, and using that as the guidepost. But our our strategy was always... Rather than in a situation where you control the drill bit and then you buy something that's concentrated to that particular drilling rig or company, we were trying to build a portfolio where you owned a small interest in a lot of good stuff. And so it was supposed to be, on the whole, a portfolio that you were comfortable with the overall trend of it. And you were going to be wrong on some, both positively and negatively. But even though you didn't control the drill bit, you just weren't hyper-concentrated to any one operator or zip code. Right. The, so how was the buy? Was it buying big, huge blocks of minerals from, from previous owners? Was it hand-to-hand combat, literally knocking on a rancher's door, door or going to the coffee shop and trying to get Farmer Bob to sell you an eighth of 20 acres? What was kind of, how were y'all getting these minerals? Yeah, like, yes, you know, it <laughs> okay, was, yeah, it was just enough. all of the above. Um, and we were, at least from Fortis's standpoint, we were happy to buy from anyone as long as it met our criteria, you know, and as long as we were comfortable with what we were paying, which is kind of an obvious statement. But I think a lot of people have a negative connotation towards, you know, whether it be a marketed process or a flipper or whatever. And if somebody's making money off the fact that you're buying something, our view was, let's come up with what we think it's worth. And if we can buy it for that, then that's good news. Yeah. Um, and so we did a lot of transactions with anywhere from direct to the owner where we had, you know, we were using day rate people to help us go find them and call them and get it on, on the hook all the way to, um, we bought from Haymaker actually through a marketed process in, uh, at the end of 2016. So would you, would you buy from Haymaker? The Delaware Basin assets. A lot of it was stuff oh, they had bought the, from Chesapeake. This is like such a funny story on this. So we have Haymaker going, right? And we bought the old portfolio that Carl and Vasily had put together. Cornerstone. Right? Cornerstone, yeah. right? And we bought that. And the whole thought, we knew that Simerex was, had just bought the working interest underlying a big portion of those minerals and we're going to get after it. So we buy it and then literally 20 minutes later, oil prices fall, yep. you know, crater down. And uh, so anyway, we have this entity and Carl runs across this Chesapeake deal. And I'm like, all right, let's talk about this. I already have trouble wrapping my head around minerals. And uh, Carl's sitting there going, oh man, we just buy this because we're going to find so much stuff. And I go, that sounds great. Can you at least give me more than that? <laughs> you know, yep, we, yep. like, oh, it's going to be great. You know? And so anyway, we looked at it and we, I just couldn't get my, my, my head around it. 
And, you know, Carl's like, oh, this is going to be the greatest deal. And I'm like, well, look, you can go out and get other capital. I'm not going to stand in your way, you know. Um, so goes and gets KKR, brings KKR into this thing. I shit you not, that entity with KKR that everybody, everybody just kind of viewed it all as haymaker, but it was really two buckets. That entity owned more royalty interest underneath Silver Hill, a Kane Anderson portfolio company, yep. than the our bucket of uh of Haymaker owned. And we had been out there for 18 months knocking on every door trying to buy trying to buy minerals. And they didn't know that when they bought it from Chesapeake. Carl I, calls up one day, you won't believe the shit we found. <laughs> I don't I don't doubt it. I mean that was that was one of the biggest reasons why we bought that portfolio was that position, that Silver Hill oh, position. Yeah. And it was because I mean, and don't don't say confidential information, but wasn't it like 80 or 90 million bucks, something like that? Yeah, in that vicinity. I mean, it was a big deal for us at the time. We were it was kind of our first big splash in the Permian. And um, but it was easy to get, you know, it was easy to get excited about Silver Hill, where that was going um, you know, into RSP's hands and then ultimately just viewing that as a kind of a cornerstone to get started building your Delaware Basin position. And we did that and we built around that position quite a bit. I will say now with the benefit of history, uh, it turned out that we were too confident in that Silver Hill position because even though I think the acreage is still very high quality, it has not been drilled the way we thought it was going to be drilled. And part of that's, you know, ended up in Concho's hands again after it, you know, wasn't in the first place or, or they sold it, I guess, to Silver Hill in the first place and then bought it back in a funny way. But, you know, they ended up drilling a lot more in places like New Mexico and just other spots. And um, so it didn't get drilled the way we thought it would get drilled. Yeah, that was that was interesting because we owned a piece of the midstream in there with Silver Hill. So we sell the oil and gas assets to RSP and we keep the midstream assets we later sell those to gosh who who did we sell them to i can't remember but we had an earn out okay as part of that deal and we even spent time going to rsp going we'll give you some of the earn out if you'll just drill it yep and the 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 funny thing that happened to rsp is the stuff rsp had bought from kane earlier adventure two i believe over in the Midland Basin was actually more profitable, mm-hmm. and that and Steve Gray was going, "Hey man, that's just where we're running our rigs." And then you know, yep, minus thirty seven dollar oil causes a lot of stuff not to get drilled. Yeah, it causes so, that's a little change in the model. Yeah, so so okay, so Fortis, you're sitting there, um, and you're with NCAP because because uh, they're back in Felix, and and that makes a lot of sense. What's life like with a private equity? guy and you can go ahead and say whatever you want they kicked me out of the club so uh, you know i won't take offense in fact i'll probably agree agree with you well it's it's funny because i have i guess the perspective of both being a private equity guy and then later working for private equity guys um so i was at first reserve for six years uh prior to going to be uh escondido's cfo and so learned a lot about the way the world turns from inside the walls. And right. then, you know, in, in some respects, I feel like maybe I knew too much. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so that wasn't always uh, that wasn't always helpful. But I tried to at least 
at Escondido and also at Fortis always think about, you know, what what might be if you're in the view in the world from their lens, what are they thinking about? What do they need? What kind of information do they want to see? And just making sure. How do I maximize their management fee? (laughs) All the (laughs) the important stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, No, but just trying to trying to always be prepared for that in terms of what we presented to them, the types of ideas we brought to them, the materials we put in front of them, all those things. And, um, you know, so I think life with private equity is a lot easier if you spend time thinking about that. Um, And if you spend time trying to understand what they are trying to accomplish and then make sure that you're, you know, aligned with that as much as you can be. So we tried to, I think, and I think we did a pretty decent job of that. We definitely weren't perfect. Um, but that's what helped in the early days in particular, when we started the company in 2016, you know, we deployed our first commitment with them in just under a year. And so all of a sudden life was going fast. We set up a second one and then we deployed that, um, pretty quickly as well. And so, when you're going that fast, you just got to be organized and make sure you're getting those guys exactly what they need so that everyone stays comfortable with moving at that kind of pace. You know, what I would always tell people, because back, let's call it 2007 to 2012, you know, kind of in that, you know, and plus or minus three or four years on either side, you know, for a while there, NGP, Quantum, NCAP, Kane denim we were all chasing the same management teams right yep and management teams the good ones would get a term sheet from everybody play each other's term sheet off and go with the high bid and i used to always tell management teams and i said look this is going to sound self-serving but it really is true don't even look at a term sheet until you've gone to dinner and see if you like these people till you've gone through two example deals and figure out how they think versus what you think yep. in terms of making money and all that. Because I'll tell you this, you can get an extra 5% or an extra 10% on the back end of negotiating your term sheet. But if your private equity person says no to mm-hmm. a deal, you have zero, Yeah, you know? Yep. And so I think that's totally right. Yeah. Or if you end up in a place where you see the world differently, you know, it doesn't really matter because you don't, you don't control that. Yeah. Um, no, I think that's good advice. And I, um, you know, a lot of the success that some of those firms that you mentioned have had, have been very good at recruiting the best people for what they were trying to do and let them go execute. Um, and so it's, that, those were the same years that I was at First Reserve approximately. I was there um, 2008 through 2012, um, or 14 rather, 2008 through 14. I was there for six years. But we weren't really in the backing management teams game. We were in the, you know, buying out companies or making larger investments games. So I, I didn't really participate in that side of things from the private equity world. So I guess that's one part that was different than what I ultimately ended up doing. Yeah, no, that's right. And you guys did a lot more in the way of service. I mean, Hardy was there. So you did some EMP and. Yep. Hardy was there. We did, we did a decent amount of midstream. I was kind of, spread out between upstream and midstream. And I didn't do much in the way of services. I did some downstream stuff. Um, but it was, I kind of liked that because I like seeing different stuff and getting exposure to different things. Um, but a lot of people end up kind of specialized towards one of those verticals. Did you ever lap with John Link or any? I don't think so. So you just, you missed, so 
John, I think, uh, he ran, so he was doing EMP for first reserve and I may have this backwards. And at some point he went over and ran frog, which was first reserve oil and gas, which is an actual EMP company. And, uh, yeah, linker linker is one of the funniest guys, just great at the big picture. He's walking out of Nape one time and, uh, I go, Hey John. And this was back, call it. 2007 when gas was at $14 now. Yep. He comes walking out. I go, Hey John, how's it going in there? He goes, man, it's so great. The bankrupt companies have two booths, you know, <laughs> just a, just a great guy. But, um, so going back to life with private equity guy, getting to know each other, translate that into like down in the weeds type stuff. Are we talking weekly board meetings, monthly, quarterly? How many times are you on the phone with them? How many times are you sending them a model financials? How does all that look like? Man, it's a good question because I think that varies pretty dramatically from firm to firm in terms of approach. Um, First Reserve when I was there was pretty hands-on, so we were were very frequently communicating with the management teams. Um, It depended for, you know, my time with NCAP was really dependent on what we had going on. If we were chasing a lot of deals, which we obviously were in the early days, we talked to them quite a bit. Um, as we started pivoting towards kind of strategic alternatives in terms of what we could do with the portfolio, it just depended on, you know, how, um, what needed to be decided on, you know, if there yeah. was something in front of you to actually need to make a call that would really drive how much time you would spend together. And of course we had regular, regular board meetings at, you know, the kind of typical intervals. Um, but it was nice that we were, uh, I was two blocks away from them. So we intentionally got our office space downtown, which meant that if there was something that you wanted to talk about or need to talk about, you could pop over and do that pretty quickly. That was pretty important to me. And I think it ended up being useful to have that. So, but the real answer to your question varies dramatically. I mean, I've heard some horror stories of the weekly board meeting, which I think is just, you know, could not be further from counterproductive or, <laughs> or could not be more counterproductive is the way I should say it. It's just, you know, at some point you have to, if you have a management team, they need to be given the license to execute. And if they're spending their time preparing materials for the private equity firm on a weekly basis, there's no room to execute. And they're completely distracted by doing that. Um, And I think that's true even in turnaround or distress scenarios. Um, You have to have people that can execute and give them an ability to go execute. Otherwise, I think you're missing the picture big time. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's right. What we found, uh, similar to what you said, there was just kind of a cadence with the management team. We had one management team that about every three weeks we had to get together and we didn't have to have materials prepared. I mean, we literally just needed a map out in front of us talking about what was going on. Because what we found is this management team had a tendency to just chase butterflies. Yep. And so every three weeks, knowing that we're going to walk in there and saying, what's going on with this rig? Where's the next location? How do we stand on that? Where are we on cost? And we didn't ask them to prepare stuff. I mean, it's stuff that the the man, the CEO should know off the top of their head Yep. Uh, type things. But we just found that was so much better, and, and that kept that management team on track. Where we had, you know, another CEO that literally once a quarter, I mean, we get together, we go through everything. They would have a big uh, book prepared. 
And that just worked really well for, for those guys. I mean, that CEO would call with strategic type stuff. Uh, you know, hey, we're looking at refinancing our bank line. We think we can get it cheaper. Got any thoughts? You know, we'd have those yep. type discussions. Uh, but literally, we would get stuff once a quarter. And if anything was different than what we thought was going to be in that book, we knew it because the CEO had called the moment it happened. Like, you know, it got stuck one time and we spent, I don't know, 15 million on a well that should have cost five, mm -hmm. but you know, we got the phone call. So you're yeah. right. It, it kind of comes down to, down to the personalities. What was Kane's style with respect to the, you know, how much of the materials did you actually spend time with? before and study them and come where you know you're instead of flipping pages you're actually just talking <laughs> about you know what was in the materials so the thing that was a little different in our dna and we were i don't know we probably did five to ten deals with ncap we did five deals with ngp i'm not sure we were ever ever with denim on anything um we did a deal or two with lime rock so kind of the thing that was different about us is we just had a whole shitload of engineers mm -hmm. um you know my co-managing partner mike kinds engineers engineer right um exxon neville and sewell and so a lot of our board meetings turned into rolling a map out looking at logs looking at drilling costs looking at curves yep and i got really good being the finance guy at turning that into what the balance sheet should look look like. So we actually wouldn't really go through financials at board meetings, but I'd get them later and I'd say, okay, did that, did, you know, the fact we've drilled 20 wells here, does the balance sheet look right? Does you it know? reflect that? Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, we, we were, and it was good and bad. I mean, I think having particularly early days of the shale revolution, having engineers there, because let's face it, I mean, the shale revolution early days was all about how we're going to make these completions work, yep. right? Yep. And you went from analogy being the next well over to analogy sometimes being a state away. You know, this rock kind of looks like this. Maybe 100 mesh is going to work and, yep. and the like. So I think that really, that really helped having that engineering DNA on kind of the early stage assets we were doing. But it really, really sucked for two reasons. One, when something went wrong, an engineer's mindset is to go fix it. Yep. And you just needed to cut bait. And that, that's probably the biggest mistake I made as an investor was listening to engineers going, well, if we tweak this, tweak this, I should have just said, no, let's just get rid of it. So we threw some good money after bad. We got better. We got better at it kind of over time. So that was number one. And then number two, totally underappreciating the impact of just the macro on everything. Mm -hmm. You know, walking in, we go, should we sell? And an engineer would sit there and go, well, our op costs are $6 per barrel. If we get it down to three and prove that to the market, we can create $25 million of PV10 or $50 million or whatever it is. And I should have said more often, dude, oil's at 100 Sell. Yeah. yeah. Right. Because if oil goes to eighty, we've wiped all that out. Yeah. So that was that was kind of the downside to our engine. I also see that. I think I've seen plenty of examples of that with respect to just where you are relative to your investment. Right. So I think 
deciding to sell or not, of course, you need to make sure that you think you're getting a price that compares favorably to what you think it's worth, um, to state the obvious. But at the end of the day, private equity is stewards of a bunch of LP capital. And if a deal is a 10x, the LPs, if you went around to the LPs and said, what do you want to do? What do you think their answer is going to be? <laughs> yeah. Right. So there's been a few of those examples too along the way. We we were not one of those examples to be clear, but um, like we were never sitting there saying like, should we sell this for 10x? Yes or no? Um, but th- I've seen that a few times too, where it's like, mm, I'm pretty sure the LPs would rather have sold that. Yeah, and you know what else that I think I always underappreciated is when the market says something's worth X. Guess what? That's what it's worth. Yeah, for sure. You know, and and we I. You know, of all the times I sat there and we, you know, had a 1.7 on the table and we're like, no, we need a two or we can't sell for a two. Of all the times we we held on, I think it bit us in the ass every time except Silver Hill. Yeah. I mean, Silver Hill was the one, me and and Kyle Miller and Emery and Mike Hines, and we were all sitting around. Do we sell this for a 2X? We all went, nah, we've got bird's nest on the ground. You just don't get rid of this. And we held on and we we doubled down, right? We yep. actually wound up buying out Concho and and all. And, and that one worked out well. Every other time it bit me in the ass. Yep. Yeah. I think it tends to. And and it's funny how much you can have this emotional tie to a round number, like 2X, right? As yeah. opposed to 1.7 or 2.2 or whatever. You know, yeah. like why, why is that the perfect number that you should make a yes, no decision on relative to transacting. Well, and the other thing I found that kind of this fixation on the two, two X is one, you threw good money after bad, trying to resurrect something to get it to the two X. And the other thing you did is when you had a real winner, sometimes you sold a little early, mm-hmm. you know, yep. at the, at the two X for all my talk about it, biting us on the ass of holding it. But well, in specific to minerals, there's just been so many examples of you've been paid to wait, um, particularly the families that have owned minerals for a long time. And so that's uh, that we were always fighting with that mentality, whether we were trying to buy something from somebody or whether we were trying to do something strategic with our assets was just this like, well, so far I've been paid to wait. So why do I want to rush and do something? I mean, that's every midland west texas grandfather on his deathbed right yep don't sell the minerals don't sell the minerals that's right yeah no and it and it did uh that's a real thing too i mean you these families have been told that it's a real it's not just a you know it's not just kind of a funny joke it's just a real thing that's in the dna of some of these families and it worked well for them oh yeah you know it it uh it really did we always found it haymaker that families that sold had almost nothing to do with oil price and the like. It had to do with family events. Yep. The kids going to college, so they got to sell some minerals. There's a divorce, you know. There's a death in the family, and and whatever. That's what really drove selling of the minerals. Not man, oil's at hundred. It's a good time. Yeah, I think that's right. You'd have life events. Um, sometimes you'd have. We increasingly saw that there was this just you know hatred of oil and gas, and somebody inherited it and they live in California. And so they're just want to divest it, you right. know, be almost thematically. Um, and so that would sometimes happen as well. So you're hanging out at Fortis. Y'all have a ton of in cap cash. You were going public. Yeah. We had actually filed a public, um, S one in, 
2019. So it existed out there in the public domain for a little while. But, um, you know, in the end of 2019, the appetite for oil and gas of any type, even minerals, had gotten to a pretty bad place. So we just all looked at each other and said, are we really getting a fair shake valuation-wise to go take this thing out? And I think the answer was pretty resoundingly no. Um, and w- management team definitely agreed with that as well. So we took a pause on that. And, uh, you know, then 2020 happened. So um, no one had that in their models or expectations, but oil and gas was already in such a, a beat up place in terms of the public perception, the public investor perception of it, that it was a pretty easy decision at the time to back off of the public. Yeah, no, I mean, we were raising Energy Fund 8 and we kind of kicked it off in 2018 and the vibe was already there yep. of, you know. Oil and gas, nah, I think we're full up. Eh, I'm not so sure. Yep. You know, the 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 green problem was starting to take hold, but so was the red. Mm-hmm. I mean, people were just going, you know, come on, man, y'all haven't made any money in a decade. Yep. You know. So yeah, that 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 happened before minus thirty seven dollar oil. I mean, that didn't help, but when we we went and we did a bunch of, you know, I guess you could kind of call it testing the waters, but we just went to go really starting in 20 late 2017 early 2018 we the management team just took it upon ourselves to go introduce ourselves to a lot of these public equity investors because our view was you're going to have to deal with the public some way shape or form whether you sell it to a public company or you take it public but ultimately there's just too much invested capital and there's not enough cash buyers you were taking stock one way or another you were going to have to deal with it so we just felt like it was part of our duty to go educate as much as possible, some of the guys that were investing in the space, but also, frankly, to have them educate us. So teach us how portfolio manager XYZ, teach us how you're incentivized, teach us how your world works. What what do you like to see in deals and not like to see in deals? And how do we make sure that we're not dummies and how we go set this thing up? So that was really fun and cool because we got to just learn a lot about how that world works. But when we went, and at this point, you know, 2019, we've got our S1 out there, and we know a lot of these people personally. This is the fourth time, fifth time we're going to sit down with them face to face. And they just look at you and they tell you how disgusted they are with, <laughs> with the space that you're in. You're like, well, this is not a good time to go right. make this work. So that was, um, it was both tough to, to you know, see that, but it was also just made the decision, like I said earlier, made the decision easy to not force the issue. Yeah. It, it was So 2000... 19 and i want to say it was march oldest kiddos doing model un in new york city so i go with charlie for a week in new york city and i just told everybody at kane i said guys i'm in effect going to be unavailable all i'm going to do is go up and down wall street and talk to public buy side folks that are doing oil that are you know doing oil and gas just to hear what they have to say and learned a lot of interesting stuff. Again, you know, feel free to say no shit, Sherlock. But one of the things that popped out in 2019 talking is, it was funny. I was sitting there talking to one guy and he kept saying, you people. And I kept saying, hey, I'm in oil and gas. Yeah, but, you know, yeah. but he kept saying, you know, you people, the oil and gas business, you used to, or no, he, he started off with, you guys are the biggest destroyer of capital I've ever met. I'm like, okay. Yep. Not not me personally, but all right. Yep. Uh, I'll, I'll say that. 
And he said, but I would always invest in you guys because something would happen and commodity prices would run. And if I was disciplined enough to actually take my chips off the table, I made money. And mm -hmm. it was usually countercyclical to the rest of the economy. So yep. tech would crash or whatever, commodities would run, I'd make my money. And he said, you guys have become so good at getting oil out. You have capped oil at $60 a barrel for the rest of my lifetime. Mm. And he said, so I have no more optionality on price. So when I factor that in at zero, the stocks are overvalued in my mind, 25, 30%. That's why I don't own them. Well, and it, that person's about to, you know, see some of, in my view, some of that cycle come back again, right? Because yeah. now, yes, we did get good at it, but it turns out we weren't as good as we thought in some cases, you know, some of the acreage isn't as prolific as we thought. And you've just got this hatred of the sector that's starving from capital in a lot of cases. And all of a sudden now you're going back to the president of the United States, ask OPEC to produce more, you know? Yeah. So it's like, well, how do we get back to that? Yeah. No, it'd be interesting to go talk to that guy again to see if, if he's changed perspective. Cause I'm, I'm on record. I spoke it on a panel at NAPE whatever that was two or three weeks ago. And, uh, I called December, 2022 oil at $97.25. And within the next three to five years, we hit 125 because we are, I mean, OPEC does not have 7 million barrels of spare capacity. Like they say, because if you just look at the number of rigs that are running in OPEC countries, it's 3x greater than it was 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. So if you have all that spare capacity, why are you running the rigs? That's interesting. I haven't tracked that, but yeah, that's an interesting question. Yeah. So any great juicy stories on bankers when you're selecting bankers, drafting S1s? Oh, man. Um, you know, that, one tidbit. Well, on. then there again is an example of maybe I just knew too much for my own good because I started as an investment banker. You know, I started with UBS right out of college. And um, so I spent some time around that dynamic. And, um, you know, I think the, the, the juiciest part about the whole process with bankers is probably just how much we probably annoyed them um, because we and, you know, I take responsibility for this, but we just didn't want to do it like everyone else. And so whenever it's not like everyone else, that's very frustrating to the process. Right. You know, there's like a, well, there's a comp group and the comp group does this. And so you need to look just like the comp group and you're a discount to the comp group and like job's done, you know? And yeah. so that was, we would, um, we'd say, well, we don't actually want to produce, we don't want to um, pay out all of our cash flow as a dividend. We want to recycle some of it because part of the whole goal of this is that we want to go consolidate more assets that look like ours. That's the whole reason for going public. And so, you know, when has it ever worked in the energy space to produce, you know, whatever you can and distribute all of your cash flow out and then have to go back to the market for capital? It's never worked. Right. It always fails at some point. And so we were just saying, we don't want to do that. And, um, and so that was probably the juiciest part of our interaction with the bankers was finding people that were willing to help us go sell that story. <laughs> um, well, you know, my, my twist on that was you know, get the boot from Kane and I'm sitting around, uh, you know, eating bonbons, uh, watching Oprah every day. And, you know, so about call it fall of last year, every day, a hundred calls, Chuck, start a SPAC, you know, Chuck, start a SPAC. Yep. And, um, you know, I actually looked into it, researched it and sat there and said, okay, 
I see the structural flaws in this. Maybe I can make it better. You know, like instead of getting my 20 promote, 20 percent promote the day we de, you know, we de SPAC, if you will, maybe I get options that, that have strike prices increasingly higher above the IPO price. Mm -hmm. You know, I actually killed some brain cells thinking this through. And, you know, maybe they vested over five years, you know, just stuff that aligned us. And when I went and talked to bankers about it, their their feedback was it's different. Yeah. And I go, but it's better. Yeah. And he got and one of the bankers that I'm really good friends with said, Hey, I get it and I appreciate what you did. And then if investors truly focused on it, they uh they would sit there and go, Okay, this is better for me. But investors are so cynical, they're gonna go, This is different. He's screwing me somehow, so they won't touch it. Yep. You know, I, we had that experience too, frankly, with uh, the investors themselves. Like I said, we had developed some personal rapport with some of them. And at one of the biggest, most influential investors that's out there, which, you know, we'll, I'll keep it nameless, but we went through this kind of pitch. We went and showed them, like, here's why we want to do this. We don't want to pay out 100% cash flow. We want to use some of it to recycle. We don't want to always be dependent on the capital markets. And so we go through this pitch. And at the end of it, he looks at me and he's just like, I agree with you that this is a smarter way to run a business. I'm just telling you, I don't care because I hate oil and gas. Yeah. And it's like, okay, what do I do with that? Like, I hear you that you're frustrated with the sector and maybe some of that's warranted, but why does that mean that our company, me in front of you now, should go set ourselves up to have a higher risk of failure? You know, yeah. that, that doesn't, that's not a good trade for us. Yeah. And so that was, you know, that was eye opening to to see that. Yeah, no, it, it goes back to that rant. Uh I always do we're not wine flexing during this podcast, but anytime we, I wine flex during a podcast, I always get on my soapbox about, you know, it truly is just for everybody involved, beta's the only thing that matters in oil and gas. Alpha really doesn't. It's impossible to go create alpha. And if you did, you were probably you were you were you almost did it despite yourself. Yeah. I mean the the <laughs> you know the truth the the uh, the truth uh, story about Silver Hill was we originally bought the shallow rights from Clayton Williams because we were going to go commingle the canyon sands mm -hmm. like a wolfberry. Yep. And we drilled seven of those wells, and they were the damn finest water wells in all of uh, West Texas. I mean, they were making oil, but they're also making you know three thousand <laughs> barrels of water a day. And you know, Clayton Williams needed money, and they called back and said, "Hey, we'll sell you the deep rights if you can close in two weeks." We got our head around it, and that was an educated good deal. But it, I mean, it was right place, right time. Oh yeah, you know, so much of that in the oil and gas sector. But I think that's true in other places as well. I don't think it's just oil and gas, but there is kind of this constant sell it to the next guy mentality in oil and gas that you you're the only thing you're building is something you hope to sell to the next guy yeah so there's kind of a promoter aspect to it and i think that drives a little bit less of a build the long-term sustainable business mentality um now i think now it's been forced on the sector that you have to do it that way because you can't there's no longer this endless sea of buyers that are going to buy your project so you right. kind of have to do it the old-fashioned way Supposedly, uh, Scott Sheffield uh, was speaking either on TV or at a conference in the last day or two and claimed they're 10x the selling volume right now versus the buying volume. 
So assets for sale versus the cash out there to buy them. I mean, I don't know if it's 10x, but it seems plausible at least that it's more, you yeah. know, more that wants to find a home than there is homes for it. Yeah. I mean, if you live through minus $37 oil and you're staring at 70, you can't really fault yourself for wanting to sell your assets these no. days. Yeah. Hint, hint, Kane, please sell everything you can. <laughs> <laughs> please, please close out those funds. <laughs> please close yeah. out those funds. Yeah. No, that's a. Uh, that's uh, one, of the, one of the interesting things of the departure from Kane is uh, is uh, I'm still on the hook as an LP for all that. I mean, generally speaking, you 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 have a freeze there yep. where you don't have to make additional capital commitments because folks realize, hey, you know, Chuck wouldn't have invested this much as an LP if he wasn't calling the shots, right? And or you know, getting his share of the management fee to finance it, right? Right. Kane didn't see it that way. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so every day that goes by and they don't call capital, that's a good day at the Yates house. Well, it's a little different when, like you said, when the management fee is not around to, you know, uses your facility to fund the, the calls, it's a little different. Yeah, no, writing checks from the bank account. <laughs> it's kind of like, yeah. So anyway, the... Um, uh, so, okay, so Fortis decides not to go public, and you're now at Bandera. What's the story there? It was a wild 18 months um, or so, but it's been a wild 18 months for a lot of people um, this this last 18 months or so. Um, so, really, I think the way you would sum it up is just, okay, so you're sitting there, pandemic is there, everyone's worried about how bad the world's going to get, Um and it felt pretty bad in the moment, right? When negative $37 to your point and just, okay, you bought a lot of assets on the premise that development was going to continue at a very steady pace. Rigs were being parked wherever they could be parked. Um, and so what was obvious was that one, we needed to try to cut some costs. Two was um, NCAP had four portfolios that were pursuing this. And uh, what made a lot of sense was to put them together. and um, so we were big supporters of that for sure. And um, to just, you know, take a position where we could put all these assets together, manage them very efficiently, lower some cost, and just, you know, what's the best part about minerals? Well, they're free cash flow positive. So you can just sit there and ride it out for a while. And so that's basically what ended up happening. They put the majority of their assets together under one management team. It's the Pegasus management team in Fort Worth. And there's actually about not quite half of our team um, went to go work the assets. And so, um, you know, taking kind of the best of the process and systems and stuff like that that people had built and you put it together. So we still have equity in, um, in the portfolio via the vehicle that was Fortis. And so we're cheerleaders for them from the, from the sidelines, hoping that things work out really well. But you know, so that happened, the consolidation happened, and then we kind of got a license to be able to go do something new. Right. And um, so we set out to go create a way to keep chasing minerals because we love the asset. And we partnered up with Apollo and specifically they've got a minerals fund, um, you know, where their insurance business is a pretty material investor there. And so it's it's the right kind of capital for minerals, something that can be patient, something that um, views the world from a yield perspective. 
And uh, so we set up a, a joint venture with them to to be able to pursue minerals under the Bandera um, name. So, so I want to come back to that, um, but let's go back real quick to to Fortis. So you were you were part of the the Smashco process. What's maybe one or two things that you know folks that have never gone through it of the rumors out there of what happens in Smashco, one or two things that are true about it and what are one or two things that are maybe false about it or or impressions are wrong about Smashco's? Because, I mean, the impression out there is big, bad, evil private equity firm walks in, fires everybody and and uh, and puts the assets all in, in one bucket. I personally believe that you do that. Yeah, you save a little bit in costs, but you more do it just so you can show your LPs you're doing something, right? <laughs> I mean, it's like, look at us, you know, yeah. strategically what we're, we're doing. But. We're, we're doing all the right things. Yeah. I mean, there, there's certainly stories like that that exist. I mean, in our case, we, we thought it was just the right move to put everything together. Um, and we were pushing for that, you know, for a while, quite frankly. Um, and so, when it was happening that at least that we thought it was the right thing to do made it easier, but no doubt it was an extremely difficult thing for us to get our arms around and for us to just get comfortable with. And for me in particular, you know, quite frankly, I mean, when you, when a company starts with you in temporary space and a laptop, you know, yeah. and then you, you grow it into something material and, um, you know, you have a bunch of people that you've gone through the ups and downs with. And, you know, these companies are like a total emotional roller coaster, right? Like yeah. you have your, you have your days that you're like, holy cow, I can't believe we accomplished that. And then you have your days where it's like, how in the, how do we screw that up so bad? Yeah. You know, so it's just the ups and the downs. But when you go through that for a lot of years and you're kind of at the doorstep of almost taking a business public and then all of a sudden you're, you know, you're kind of rolling up the maps it's tough. I mean, it made for a pretty hard, I think what, to answer your question, what's true about it is it's really tough. Yeah. Particularly when you were there from the get go and, and there was, you know, several people at Fortis that were there basically since the very beginning, I think it was just very tough on all of us. Yeah. We took a lot of pride in the company. Um, and I think we had done a pretty good job. Um, but what's not true about it, um, I don't think private equity people are doing it to spite the management teams. I think yeah. sometimes that's kind of the, the feeling. I don't think that's true. I think they're just trying to make the best decisions they know to make or that they think are the right decisions to make. Um, and I think what I think what people don't realize is on the other side of that trade are LPs that are firemen, teachers, you know, so they're there there's livelihood and dollars on the other side too. It's not a just, you know, bounty full of capital and and the like i think the fair criticism that i've heard and i want to give credit maybe to energy cynic on twitter cuz i think energy cynic told me this was yeah but you could be more generous in severance with your management fee that's probably a fair criticism of private equity yeah i don't it's <laughs> it's a Senator, I can neither confirm nor deny any said allegation. No, I mean, I think we actually got to a pretty good place. Um, but it's, you know, it's tough because you do hear some stories that weren't us, right. that of people that do kind of have the experience that's the headline experience. You know, it's like they walk in one day and they just say it's over and you're gone and there's nothing to show for it. 
And that, I can't imagine that, that would be very difficult. But like I said, at this point we're, you know, we still have exposure to the assets and we, you know, they're, it's an amazing portfolio in particular, the combined portfolio. So we're, we're huge cheerleaders for it. Yeah. So coming to Bandera now, you know, a lot of talk of having to hold assets longer, capital structure needs to match up better because the buy and flip model's gone. Yep. Do, does management incentive structures change when you go to negotiate the term sheet with Bandera? And I'm not asking for specifics. I'm just in general, did it look different? It did. Um, and that was one of the things we wanted to try to adjust because it needed to, it needed to be something that could have, you know, just better alignment to the actual assets themselves. And so we, I think we got to an exciting place with respect to that. Um, and also just having capital that's behind it that is interested in the duration and the, and the assets themselves. I think that's, that's a big positive, but I don't think what has happened is that there is all of a sudden a sea of people or private equity or capital that's willing to hand a, a totally new style of incentive arrangement than existed before with the private equity guys. So that still, that still is a challenge. I think it's still for anybody that wants to pursue acquiring minerals, your options are either to do friends and family style money, basically family office style money, in which case you can get much better terms, but you can't get as much capital or you can go to an institution and just have to deal with the fact that there's norms there with respect to what terms they're willing to give you and things they're not willing to change. I think we found a pretty happy medium of those things, but it's, it, that was difficult. It's, it's hard to, it's hard for that to be true. If you just go in tomorrow to go find capital. Yeah. Cause you know, and, and this was by design, although I'm not sure we fully all appreciated the quote unquote genius of it. But when you created these waterfalls whereby the better you did as the capital provider, the more management shared in it, it almost forced a sale by management because when they're in the high splits and let's just say you're at 50-50, you're drilling a $10 million well, management's spending $5 million on that well. Mm -hmm. And you know management teams are pretty sharp and they realize, you know, if I wanted to spend $5 million on a well... Uh, I wouldn't have had this private equity guy yeah, yeah, si right. sitting here. And so generally speaking, you could tell when people felt like they were in the higher splits, that's when you started getting the phone calls of, you know, we should consider selling, we should consider running a, a process. And, you know, that worked well when you, when you could flip, but when you couldn't flip the, the reverse happens is if things are worth what you paid for it, management's not making anything because you've really crunched their salaries down vis-a-vis yep. -vis what they could do. So one of one of the things we were getting to even before minus $37 oil was in effect taking a portion of the management's back end and monetizing it for them. Not so much that it misaligned uh, incentives, but more so just I know you're going to have to wait around three or five years to get that. Why don't we buy it from you today? Yeah. And that makes sense. I've had some interesting conversations with private equity guys in different industries about what their model is. And in particular, what, let's say you have a, a very good outcome. You sell a company for three X. Kind of the question is what multiple of your cash comp do you make in back end? Right. And 
it was kind of eye-opening to me how different that can be for different private equity and different industries. In some cases, it's like, well, I'm going to pay somebody much more like a fair cash comp plan, but they're only going to have multiples of, you know, back end that's two or three or four times what they make on a cash comp basis. Yeah. But I think most of the energy private equity complex was a way higher multiple, at least potential. Right. And so, you know, if you, you were talking about a scenario where you're already in the high splits, which is obviously what everyone strives for, but what if you're not? Yeah. If you're not, you're striving to get to the high splits, which means your economic model, your incentives are to go swing big. Yeah. Right? A lottery ticket. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, that's exactly right. What I spent a little bit of time because before I joined Kane, I was at Stevens, the Little Rock, uh, Arkansas Investment Bank. And the thing that most people don't know about Stevens is, you know, the family back uh, when I was there kind of late 90s, they were investing as much money. I think they were the 12th largest LBO shop, you know, in terms of dollars invested, you know, so they're out competing with KKR, et cetera. Or they were the seventh largest venture capital firm, depending on which they did both. So yep. whichever bucket you put them in. So we spent a lot of time looking for deals uh, for the family. So I got to build LBO models for different industries. And you're right. That was, you know, a CEO would get paid kind of what the average public company CEO would get paid and the equity pool available to the management team was like 5%. Yep. You know? And it was just another another business, you know. But it was that's normal to them or that situation, and so that's what you yeah that's what you took. But it's it was that was eye opening to me, and just in terms of I think incentives work right, um, yeah. and so follow the follow the incentives, and I think that's just an interesting thing to think about with respect to the industry and how people have, you know, what they're what they're spending their time chasing. Yeah, because there's. There's got to be a shift if you're going to hold assets longer. There's got to be an alignment of of incentives. And the other thing too is you got to figure out how to incentivize management teams for nickels and dimes to matter. Yeah. Cuz with big, you know, big back ends of nickel and a dime didn't matter. Yep. You know. Yep. So All right. We're sitting here a year from now or 2 years from now and we're talking tell me two or three things that happen um, that you think are going to happen that maybe the consensus doesn't think going to happen. And then maybe something out there in the consensus that you're going to, that you say, no way, not going to happen. And we're recording this. I know <laughs> it's like, well, yeah. So this, wait, this is recorded, right? Um, <laughs> Don't worry. We can edit, <laughs> you know, so just what, make sure you save that shirt so we can, uh, yeah. we can redo it. Yep. So I can come sit back down here yeah. and do it again. Um, so things that would happen that I think are going to happen that are both consensus and not consensus. Um, I, you know, what's, what's interesting is you talk to people in the oil and gas space, I think most of them are feeling bullish on prices because they see how much companies are being starved of right. development capital. So I think in the world that you and I sit in, it, it's almost feeling kind of consensus that prices are going to have, you know, to you, like you predicted the other day. At yeah. Nate. I wasn't that far out on a limb. Yeah. So I think that is almost more consensus. I don't think, however, that it's as consensus outside of our bubble of the oil and gas space. And so, uh, you know, I, I do believe that there's a real possibility of that. I don't know if that's a consensus or not consensus. No, that's, a, that's a, that's a, that's a good point because at the end of the day, 
to attract capital. And Dan Pickering and I were talking about this on the podcast um, a little while back. To attract capital, you're right. If consensus is oil is locked at $60 for the rest of the time, the capital doesn't come back. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think so, that's, that's so well, that's going to be an interesting one to track. You know, the, the energy transition um, thing, I don't think we're going to know much more in a year than we yeah. know right now. Um, other than there's just so much capital that's going into that. And it just, some of that capital just wants it no matter what. And some of them want a story. Some of them want a narrative. I think what's very cool about that is that no matter what, even if people lose money, we're, there's going to be a lot of innovation that happens just because there's so much capital chasing yeah. the opportunity. So I, that gets me excited just as to what are we going to see? Is it going to be batteries? Is it going to be, you know, some kind of um, smart grid solutions? Are we going to, all these electric vehicles that are being built, is there going to be some really cool way to optimize the grid based on having all these power sources all of a sudden attached to the grid that weren't attached to them before? I think that's, that gets me pretty fired up. You know, I was, um, I guess speaking of being recorded, but I, you know, several years ago I bought a Tesla um, on a whim. I was like, my brother lives in San Diego and he had a buddy that was selling it and it was, the price felt right. So I, I bought it for fun and, um, I'm a huge car nerd as well. So I'm just in the car. So I like to try different ones, but anyway, just the, the concept of having all of a sudden displacing the gas station, but also having a pretty powerful battery that's sitting in your garage and what can you do with it? I just find that fascinating. Um, so, so I'll fess up to, and most folks know this, uh, until recently, the last six years, I owned a Tesla. Okay. And when Hurricane Harvey hit, you know, everybody's out running out buying batteries. I just charged the Tesla. Yep. And, you know, my power went out for a while and I would go out there and charge my phone and, and do whatever. You're right. You have a power source sitting there. Yeah. Now, like it's becoming, you know, the new Ford F-150 is going to have the ability to actually power at least a part of your home. You know, like the Tesla is not set up with that kind of infrastructure, but the Ford will be. So that kind of stuff is just very interesting to me. Um, and I think is going to start to have some, you may not be a believer in electric vehicles or the fact that the world needs them, but all of a sudden you're a real big believer in the conveniences that it's going to give you. And that's, that's pretty cool. But yeah, I've, I've since, you know, it was, it was a very fun car to have. And now I'm back into a boring, you know, Ford truck myself, but, um, I just, I have this like habit of trading cars in and out on a regular basis. Yeah. The, the one public service announcement I, uh, I have for everybody is I had two cars for the longest time, a Hummer H2 and a Tesla. Yeah. <laughs> Bipolar, right? Yep, yep. And a lot of it had to do with- Those were at the same time? At the same time. Okay. Yeah. Cause so you could switch street cred based on like, if you were going totally. to an LP meeting, you could yes. show them how sensitive you were. I was but out if, in LA. Yeah. I drive a Tesla and all that. And if I was uh, raising money from, you know, the, uh, the university of Texas at Permian basin, <laughs> <laughs> I roll in an H2 boys. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. But, um, this is the public service announcement. And I know, you know, this cause you're a car guy used car valuations are through the roof right now. Yeah, it's it's the it's kind of like the housing market. I mean, it's blowing your mind what you can sell your your house or your car for, but then okay, what are you going to go get? Um and that's that's just really getting in my psyche right now because I've got these cars that are worth more than they should be worth and like how do I go capture that spread and so I don't I can't sell a car and not have a car. 
Um, here's the arbitrage. Here's what here's here's my take on what the arbitrage is because I just went and did it. It's all driven by the chip shortage, right? Yep. There just aren't as many new cars running around. So at least what I've seen is new cars, they've held the line on prices. They have not jacked up prices of new cars 40% like used cars are up. Um, they're just hard to find. So what I did is I traded in the H2 and the Tesla, and I got a brand new Genesis G80 because mm-hmm. I was a taker. Yep. And I paid list price for it. Um, it's just a lot of dealerships are doing these, you know, like I'm going to sell you this $10,000 paint, you know, protecting package, which is basically their way of going over sticker. Right. Because inventory is limited. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I had some of that pressure at the end there, but <laughs> I, I, this was crazy. I mean, for those two cars that were combined 21 years old, um, I got a brand new Genesis G80. And as I like to say, two bottles of Screaming Eagle because I got to check back um, as well. And so the way I wrapped my mind around it and capturing the arbitrage was my two cars are 40% overvalued. Yep. I get a new car at list price and I say no to all the extras, which fortunately I was able to do, except for the tire and rim policy. Because in Houston, Texas, you got to own that, right? Um. So I did that, and the way I looked at it is three to four years from now that Genesis will lose 40% of its value mm-hmm. just being a new car. Um, so in three to four years, I'll have the same worth I would have or more than holding on to my used cars, and now I'm under a 10-year warranty on the powertrain and yep. stuff like that. Yep. So, And I got a new car. As as a as a sidebar, the the story as a car as a car guy um, of what Kia and Hyundai and Genesis have been able to do in the last ten years is one of the greatest turnaround stories of all time. The, you know, it's interesting you say that because every review I read about the Genesis, great car, hired you know designer from Bentley. They buy their leather from the same place Bentley does, better than the European models. Every review says all that, the glowing stuff, but the last line is, you just have to wrap your mind around the fact you're driving a Hyundai. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Well, that's increasingly becoming easier to do. Yeah. But, you know, you had asked about things, you know, that we might be wrong on in projecting forward. Something I was definitely wrong on now looking back was when we bought my wife's car almost three years ago, I leased it. Because just being a big SUV and part of my thoughts around that where I was worried about the residual. Right. And I was dead wrong that the residual was going to matter. And now we're caught in this weird place where the residual is actually crazy higher in real life than the residual contractually. Yeah. So it's like, well, now there's, I'm just going to go buy it, which is I didn't want to do in the first place because right. I'm capturing immediately the spread if I go sell it and turn around and sell it the next day. So yeah. I was totally wrong about that. No, there are definitely reasons to do to do math around your cars these days. Yeah. It's just crazy. Well, Chris, I appreciate you coming on. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was fun.